Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Thanks for listening to Creative Control. Uh, While I have you here, please consider supporting Youth Empowerment and Support Services, otherwise known as YES. Based in Edmonton, Alberta, YES provides immediate and low-barrier overnight and day shelter, temporary supportive housing, and individualized wraparound supports for young people aged 15 to 24. They work collaboratively within a network of care focused on the prevention of youth homelessness by providing youth with the necessary supports to stabilize their housing, improve their well-being, build life skills, connect with community, and avoid re-entry into homelessness. Learn more about how to donate or otherwise support YES by visiting YESS.org. Comedy, art, and sometimes rock and roll. Let's do a public opinion poll. Raise your hand if you love creative control. Cause when Vish is unleashed, well, you. Oh, sorry, I didn't see you there. I was just working on a tribute song to my favorite podcast, Creative Control, with Vish Khanna. My name is Matthias, and I play in a band called The Burning Hell, but more importantly, I support Creative Control on Patreon, and I think you should too. Quality long-form arts journalism is like a magical talking unicorn. It definitely exists, but it can be really hard to find. Fortunately for us, Vish makes it easy with hundreds of funny, thought-provoking, well-researched and engaging interviews with artists from all over the world. Your flexible monthly donation on Patreon will get you plenty of special exclusive treats and help Vish keep his podcast well-fed and cared for properly, the way a magical unicorn deserves. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, please visit patreon.com slash Control today. Sean Michaels is a talented, award-winning novelist and influential music writer who is based in Montreal, Quebec. Renowned for founding the essential music blog Said the Gramophone, Michaels' non-fiction work has appeared in The New Yorker, The Guardian, The Globe and Mail, and Pitchfork, among other outlets. 
His debut novel, Us Conductors, was published in 2014 and earned him Canada's coveted literary award, the Scotiabank Giller Prize. And he has also received the Quebec Writers' Federation's Paragraph Hugh McLennan Prize, as well as the Prix Nouvelle Écriture. His third novel takes on Silicon Valley and artificial intelligence and their role in shaping our emotional and intellectual connections to artistic expressions like poetry. The lovely, compelling book is called Do You Remember Being Born? and was published by Penguin Random House on September 5th, 2023. Sean returns to this show to discuss things like our first meeting in the Yukon Territory and a memorable helicopter ride we shared to view the Tombstone Mountains, his interest in the unlikely pop culture ascendance of the 20th century American poet Marianne Moore and her influence on the protagonist he conjured for his new novel, his fascination, exploration, and use of chat GPT and artificial intelligence to write this book, what folks like Nick Cave and Mark Marin may not be understanding about such technology, the art of collaboration, upcoming book tour dates, other future plans, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners just like you who follow and subscribe to this donor-driven podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash creative control. This is the primary source of revenue for all the work that uh, goes into making this show for you each week. So if you have the means and the time to donate to this show, I'd appreciate it. Again, visit patreon.com slash creative control to learn more about how you can do that plus in-kind support from the likes of pizza trocadero the bookshelf and planet bean coffee in guelph ontario and granddad's donuts in hamilton ontario all wonderful independent businesses this is episode 798 of creative control featuring the lovely and talented sean michaels with your host me vish Khanna. Hey Sean, how's it going? It's good, Vish. How are you? I'm I'm pretty well, thank you very much. Uh, where in the world are you? I'm in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Nice. How are things going in Montreal? Uh, you know what? I think things are going well in Montreal. I feel like eight months ago, I didn't, I wasn't so sure, but now the summer's here. I really feel convinced that Montreal remains a fantastic place to be. So I'm happy here. What was eight months ago, roughly? What was happening? I mean, I guess it was the winter. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, there was coming out of COVID and, you know, with gentrification here. And I think there there are still a lot of reasons to wonder, like, is Montreal on its way out? But I'm feeling optimistic about its role in the Canadian and international, I don't know, sweepstakes of where to live in the world and where the quality of life is good. I was going to ask about this, like if if you're contemplating Montreal's status, where do you look to as an alternative? Uh, oh, as well, you know, yeah. <laughs> with all due respect, there's nowhere in Canada, not for me. <laughs> um, yeah, that's fine. That's where I was getting to. And we have these kinds of conversations with people all the time. A lot of people talk about how they've moved on the last few years from wherever they were, whether it yeah. was 
from a smaller place to a bigger place. Uh, but more often, I think it's people moving from a, a larger city like Montreal or Toronto to mm-hmm. some uh, outpost in Canada. Uh, you haven't gone that far in your contemplation. No. Okay. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm too much of a big city person, but I think a lot of people are, and it can come down really very much to dollars and cents. And yeah. uh, it's hard. It's can be a hard life in 2023 to make that uh, all that add up. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, people look to the coasts and I always say, well, the water frightens <laughs> me because of the ocean and the climate. And then as today, as we're speaking uh, right now, uh, Sean, uh, I'm going to be taking in uh, relatives from Yellowknife who are being oh my God. forced to evacuate because of the wildfires. They're uh, they're driving down to Alberta, uh, to Calgary oh. and Edmonton and various places. And uh, yeah, so that's, yeah. Anyway, it's bleak. Yeah, we were, you know, Vish, we were, whenever I think, like when I heard the terrible news about Yellowknife, I just think of Dawson City, which is the closest I've been to there. It's still pretty far away. Mm-hmm. And we were there together, Dawson City. That's where ago. you and I met. Oh, is uh, it? It's literally where we met. Uh, you knew <laughs> you knew of me from our mutual friend Kit Mallow, as I as I mm-hmm, recall. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? That makes sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you mentioned it when you found out that we were among the sort of journalists uh, who were, were were there. You know, it's weird. I just told a little bit of this story to Nina Nastasia, who was oh, really? on the show. Yeah, well, I haven't Nina, listened to her episode yet. Oh well, I, it's it's a, a huge fan. Yeah, it's a it's a bit of a tough episode as you may be aware of her recent mm-hmm. circumstances but it was also very refreshingly forthright and 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 there was joy in it somehow and that's what i pick up from her album but i made a, a side note a joke because uh, nina at the time i think she may be gone back to the states uh ha- had been living in calgary um oh. doing like an arts residency and and collaborating with some people and my joke was something like, uh, well, I'm in Edmonton. We are th- about a three, a three and a half hour drive away from each other or a quick helicopter ride. And that was just a, a little <laughs> comment I made. And then we talked about succession and how everyone takes a helicopter everywhere. And cause I, I was, re- mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm still, I guess, currently rewatching the entire series, um, which I believe you're a fan of, right? Or, or yeah. you watched it. I don't know. Can anyone be a fan yeah. of these people on that show? Mm, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> you were following like a fan it. and a critic. We, That's we right. had a minor uh, exchange about it uh, as people were trying to predict uh, mm-hmm. who would uh, uh, succeed in succession. Yes. And I predicted it was, uh, what's his name? I'm already blanking on the guy's name. The, the Connor, the, the con heads, I thought. Was. Yes. <laughs> and you quickly were like, and mine was for, uh, I was a big, I was in Team Greg will win. I was in that. Yeah, team. you and I, very mistaken. <laughs> you and I picked the wrong horses in that race. But anyway, talking about helicopters. But we, but we, yeah, yeah, helicopter. Yeah, because yeah. we we went in a helicopter ride. I told the story, and you. This is great. I want to get to this because sometimes I worry that I I'm telling old stories wrong nowadays. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but every once in a while, someone will be like, "Who knows?" We'll we'll say actually, and I'm like, "Oh, I t-. anyway." Here's what I remember, Sean. You tell me. We got in a helicopter, and they gave us those uh, headsets with the microphones. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Correct? Yeah. Right. So we we take off, and we head into the mountain range. The Tombstone they're, they're Mountains, showing us, I believe. Wow, you remember that. Yeah. So this is great. You're going to remember everything. Okay, I didn't remember that. So we go to the mountains, and as I recall, on the way out, we're all kind of chatty. Mm-hmm. Hey, look at this. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's going on? And then what I told Nina is on the way back, I, I noticed it was eerily quiet. Mm. And uh, that's my memory. And I remember the visceral sensation of feeling queasy, oh, a little nauseous. 
Yeah. And I think the helicopter had done a circle or something. Yeah. And anyway, then when we landed, I told Nina that I, when I checked in with people, everyone was like, yeah, I didn't feel that great uh, on the way back. Does any of that resonate with you? Do you remember more quiet or sickly feelings on I the way back? I don't have a recall of like nausea, but hmm. like the, but, but I don't have a, I don't recollect that it definitely wasn't the case, but I do know that the experience was very memorable and visceral for me. In fact, like in, in this new book I've written, there's an illusion. There's a couple of illusions to helicopters. Yes. And to the joy of the, to the joy of traveling by helicopter. I think a character says that it was just this, it's this amazing way, just this hurtling forward way of traveling that she adores. And that is directly inspired by that trip because my takeaway oh. from our helicopter adventure to the Tombstone Mountains was that it was like, that it was wicked, that it was so <laughs> cool. And I don't mean necessarily that the whole trip was, it could well have been that there was this turning point where things got queasy and because I sometimes yeah. have motion sickness but I remember the outward journey and reaching the mountains and just like the incredible feeling of being almost in like a 360 degree plunging into beauty that was really striking really amazing I remember those things too I remember it being quite majestic and and, and you know even in the moment feeling really fortunate because mm-hmm. I believe we were on the tab of like I don't know. Yukon Tourism Board or something. Yes. They were, they, there was no reason. It had nothing to do with the music festival we were brought to sort of (laughs) attend and cover. They were just like, do you want to get in a helicopter? And we were like, okay. Uh And then we went and it was great. I really enjoyed that trip and, uh, wonder if I'll ever, I guess I'm closer to it now, but, uh, it just seemed like a once in a while. Maybe you'll one day have to flee forest fires north to Dawson City. Man, if people <laughs> from the <laughs> yeah joke. yeah, if people from the uh, frigid territories, I suppose, are having to flee fires, yeah. then uh, I think that's a probably a bad sign. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I don't know what's going to happen, and where we've we, you know we've talked. There was a period in May of 2023 where we had a, we were it was in the air here the, the notion yeah. that we may have to in Edmonton evacuate. So yeah. people are like, where would we go? Um, and I think I would just head back to Ontario. Yeah, I would. Yeah. I, I don't know what else I would do, but uh, helicopters would be handy. Anyway, weirdly bleak and fun <laughs> <laughs> recall of our first meeting, uh-huh. and uh, it's nice to have you back on the show. Congratulations on this book. Uh, do you remember being born? I'm holding a, an arc of it here, uh, showing it to Sean. Everyone, uh, congratulations, Sean. How are you feeling? Getting another book done. I can't relate to this sensation. What is it like to be like it's done? It's circulating. How do you feel? It does. There's like an old line about um, having about having children is like having like one of the organs of your body wandering around outside on its own <laughs> pair of legs. Uh, <laughs> and there's an element of that to to having a book newly in the world. It really feels like something that I feel very vulnerable and vulnerable about and worried for and kind of want to protect and keep safe and like nourish and and teach to walk and run but it just could be it's wandering out of wandering around out there and could get hit by a bus like there's really that feeling (laughs) it's a Um, the perception for a a book is uh, that the author uh, you know uh, has spent a solitary amount of time uh, working on something like a secret and then uh, they bring collaborate oh i mean my 
knowledge of how these things work. Uh, that's not exactly the case. You have editors, you have people you share things with, right? Well, I mean, with a work of fiction, there's like you don't usually often, I think usually, certainly in my case, there's no editor involved until the book is almost done. Oh, because um, you don't sell the book until it's pretty far advanced. I do have an agent who's, who sees, who saw, you know, a second or third draft of the book, but there's sort of years of work before anyone professional has seen it. And oh. in my case, a couple of friends, one or two friends, but no, no, it's, it really is that you've got a secret. Okay. Yeah. yeah that is what it is. Spouse. Does your spouse look at it? I, I, I am not. No. I mean, I, <laughs> I feel like, yeah, I've spoken, spoken with a lot of other fellow novelists about this thing. I mean, some people do have like liter- very literary relationships with their partners. For me, like what I want from my partner is not uh, uh, feedback on my work. I want like unconditional love and support. And she's a very great critic and a great, has a great reading eye, my, my wife. And um, so I would rather not... Um, yeah, I, I, she she saw the book uh, when it was done. Oh wow! And yeah. I mean, love and support in a in a, in a house with, when you're a parent is the, the you get time. The spouse helps you get the time, right? That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Well, that's interesting. I can't uh, these days if I write a short article or sometimes even an email. I say, Michelle, mm-hmm. I need you to look at this before I hit send. I don't know. <laughs> yes. Some is yes. it right? And then she'll be like, yeah, it's yes. fine. It's usually doesn't work out to be too arduous a process. But anyway, yes. no, it's wonderful. Uh, for those listening, I'm going to ask you, uh, and it's a little bit of laziness, but it's also uh, in the interest of accuracy and not misrepresenting things. Sean, can you do us all a favor and summarize in your own words what maybe the book is sort of uh, about, per se? Can you do sure. this? Yeah. Yeah. So Do You Remember Being Born is a book about a 75-year-old famous poet, fictional, uh, imaginary poet. Her name is Marianne Farmer. Wait, not Marianne Farmer. Now I'm getting confused already. <laughs> her name is Marianne Farmer. Marianne. I say Marianne because she, her character and parts of her life were inspired by a real-life poet called Marianne Moore, a 20th century poet. Um, but this is Marianne Farmer. Mm-hmm. And Marion Farmer receives a letter in the mail from a big tech company who offer her an enormous pile of money to come to California and for one week collaborate with their new cutting edge poetry AI and to create the what they describe as the first great human AI poetic collaboration. And so the book follows her seven days in California and working on this poem, trying to decide, you know, grappling with that question of whether she should do it, can she do it, how can she do it, Um, and at the same time reflecting on um, uh, episodes in her life that brought her to this point. Well put, and uh, and, and that for those listening, that, you know, obviously it's a brief summary. It doesn't quite capture... Uh, it doesn't capture the depth and emotion in the the book, obviously. It's very... This book's... It was really remarkable. It really moved me. Uh, it accompanied me on a vacation, and I enjoyed it very much. Um, you alluded to Marianne Moore, the real-life inspiration. Mm-hmm. In your acknowledgments, you even cite a New Yorker review that came out in 2013, uh, mm-hmm. a review of a book, uh, a, bi- a biography of Marianne Moore called Holding On Upside Down. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's just get... So you've talked about what the book 
is sort of about. Yeah. But, but why? Why did this story of Marianne Moore uh, compel you? Uh, just this biography and, and, and her very fascinating life based on... I, I, I By the way, mm-hmm. Sean knows this, but when, when I got to the acknowledgments and read that um, Sean was inspired by this New Yorker book review, I read the review. I found it on the internet. And uh, I was like, oh, I get it. I, th- I totally get it. <laughs> uh, but Sean, from your perspective and in your own words, why? Why Marianne Moore? Why did this figure uh, appeal to you and... And inspired it to try to write a, a fictionalized account of, of her. Well, I always, the way I always think of the novels that I've written is like that they're this kind of accumulation of inspirations, of bits and bobs and threads and spools of thread and seashells and emeralds and vinyl records and all the kind of <laughs> different bits and pieces of things that eventually you have a little like tableau of, of elements and you, sort of get a sense of how you might tell some longer story using many of those pieces as kind of inspirational material. And this book had its start kind of from two main pieces. One was AI. And so all of us have had, or almost all of us have had this experience by now in 2023 of engaging with this new generation of text-based AIs like ChatGPT, so-called large language models. But back in 2019, early 2019, I kind of stumbled across um, access into, you know, an earlier version of, it was called GPT-2, was of, you could, there were websites that let you play with it a little bit that weren't well known, except maybe in certain circles. And I stumbled into this sort of, one of these sites where you could, you know, enter some sentences and then it would continue what you had written. And I was just really provoked by this thing. It was what the stuff it was spitting back at me was, you know, at times nonsense, at times banal and superficial, but at other times like deeply, unsettlingly delightful or weird or alien or appealing. It was kind of all of these things. And I was really, I was really, I was showing it to kind of everyone I would see and thinking about the implications for, for this. It was the first time I'd ever seen like AI related writing that seemed to, to engage at the level of art in a way that was sort of complementary to what humans did. Hmm. You know, here, here suddenly was an AI being able to spit out some sentences that were, that could be actually compelling. Um, and that unsettled my understanding of, some things or started making me question them. So I had these experiences and I was thinking about AI and and all of that. And then with that kind of in the background, I read this article that you refer to by Dan Chiasson in the New Yorker about Marianne Moore and Marianne Moore I had heard of, but didn't really know about. And this article um, kind of lays out some of the broad strokes of her life and so she was a, a famous poet, which is in this day and age, even like kind of a, a yeah. contradiction in terms. She was a truly famous poet. Um, she was born in, in the, I think, the 1870s. She was celebrated for her work, you know, starting in her 20s and 30s, but actually became a celebrity in her 50s and 60s. Yeah. And the kind of celebrity, public intellectual celebrity that American culture still permitted in the mid 20th century with figures like. William F. Buckley or Gore Vidal. So Marianne Moore was sort of a wisecracking, fascinating woman who 
often wore a tricorn hat and a cape and had a deep knowledge of all kinds of things and loved baseball and threw the first pitch at a Yankees game and uh, wrote the liner notes for a Muhammad Ali album Mm -hmm. and, you know, was on the cover of magazines and all these things while still being like a very serious and kind of profound poet engaging with other poets like Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot, being an inspiration for Elizabeth Bishop. She was on The Tonight Show. You know, I think it was Bella Fonte hosted her on The Tonight Show. So kind of living in the with one foot in both of these worlds of the very serious, abstract and artful and the kind of public. And there were other interesting elements of her past. You know, she lived with her mother until her mother died of old age. So they lived together in a Manhattan apartment, just these two women for her mother's whole life and in fact slept in the same bed. Yeah. And Marianne Moore never married or had children. So there's, there, I had these questions about that strange relationship. But I was also tickled when I learned about this now notorious episode with Marianne Moore and the Ford Motor Car Company. Yeah. So Ford, the car maker. And Ford contacted Marianne Moore out of the blue in 1955 and basically asked her if she wanted to help them name their new car. And rather than wave away this sort of capitalist commercial trifling superficial idea she was like she was tickled by it you know the idea to be able to name a major consumer product was i think too tantalizing to such a poet like her and so she spent you know several months corresponding with them sending them lists of potential names and some of them are just amazing so names like Utopian Turtle Top, the Ford Utopian <laughs> Turtle Top, the Ford Mongoose Savik, the Ford Relentless Bullet, um, the Ford Pastelogram. And I just thought there was something so telling and interesting about that example of an artist, a quote unquote genius solitary artist, being tempted into engaging with kind of the enemy or an enemy, which is to say like just mass commercial product. And with all of that in mind, these things kind of started to mix together and it was a sort of muddled ideas that ended up feeding this idea of, of a poet, not unlike Marianne Moore being kind of tickled enough, curious enough about an invitation, a kind of commercial offering that she says yes to trading away some of her, prestige and maybe even some of her talent in exchange for the chance to work with what she could, you know, to do something that she could only do with the help of a giant corporation. It's a bit confusing in that uh, both the character and perhaps uh, the actual poet, uh, Marianne Moore, may have been flattered to know that their skill set was actually Mm -hmm. being acknowledged Mm-hmm. By these companies, like their their language arts was, it, it's not something to be dismissed. It was being acknowledged, and yet in the book, uh, I think it's being acknowledged and uh, for harvesting purposes, for well, knowledge creation, uh, for the machines. It's uh, anyway. I, is that what you're reading of it? Well, I mean, maybe, maybe not. But I mean, I think that the fundamental thing is that in our world of giant corporations that loom like giants, like titans, you know, astride the earth. It's naive to ever think that we as artists can kind of 
stand up to them in single-handed combat and in some ways are their rivals like the the game is rigged you know and so this book doesn't go into some deeply into as you say some sort of sinister like oh and in the end she was just being used for her work was just being used to feed the machine but i think it does kind of reckon with that being true like that's definitely also true you know no matter what's going on that is part of what is happening you know this isn't just a a giant corporation suddenly being interested in exploring the bounds of truth and beauty and in the world well and i i want to be very mindful of um not spoiling anything uh for people who are going to read this book but you've alluded to sort of this man machine poem dynamic um that Mm -hmm. is going on in your book and uh, one of the things and again i have currently um uh, an arc for those who don't know that's an advanced reading copy there can be mistakes Mm -hmm. there can be all Mm -hmm. sorts of issues there but as i'm reading your you tell me sean if this is a mistake so as i'm reading uh, the book uh, when um, Marion is interacting with the AI, Charlotte. Uh, mm-hmm. Charlotte is its name. That's the name the creators gave uh, the AI uh, thing. When Charlotte speaks, uh, the text is shaded. Uh, and, mm-hmm. uh, and as they collaborate uh, on a poem together, uh, Marianne will, sorry, the book will uh, indicate that when Marion's speaking, it's not shaded. And when Charlotte's speaking, it's shaded. So you can see who's sort of mm-hmm. writing what part of the poem. And this is where I don't want to spoil things. And also want to be careful of this is not some sort of printing error. As the, as the, <laughs> no, no, as no, the book continues, <laughs> and um, they're outside of their poetry sessions, um, the reader encounters shading almost any time, or ra- rather in a lot of instances when... Marion is reciting things or 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 describing things some of the text is shaded which you've already been conditioned as the reader to understand is Charlotte so then you're like mm-hmm. uh-oh who's feeding who what's the twist mm-hmm. going to be as it happened I'm like uh-oh <laughs> something's happening mm-hmm. to Marion now uh first of all Sean please clarify that it's not some printing error <laughs> and secondly it's what was the meaning error, no. there uh for from your perspective of having them uh influence each other in such a way so i mean there's definitely no like the book doesn't harbor some grand twist like however because of the experiments i'd been doing with some of the with gpt2 i realized that instead of just writing a book about a poet working with an AI that's purely theoretical and fictional, sort of like writing a book about, you know, someone moving to Mars, because of the moment in which I was working, my book in turn could itself be infiltrated by, by AI oh. in a similar way to the to the way Marion's work might be, you could say, infiltrated by AI. Oh, and so um, early on, I made a decision that my book would incorporate text generated by AI. Oh. And I didn't want to kind of introduce this like on page one to set the to contextualize that for the reader. I wanted the reader to have a version of the experience you're describing of like this feeling of the reality sliding around this unsettledness of like, wait, is this like contaminated by this? Like has Sean's book, this narrative, because it's what you're saying is like the chats when Marion and Charlotte are chatting, it's clear. Okay. Computer talking, human talking, computer talking. But then there's other portions where uh, 
Marianne is writing in the first person. And then there's also some peculiar passages where Mary, some Marianne seems to be writing in the second person, remembering. And I wanted to introduce some slipperiness, wobbliness uh, about where that work came from huh. and kind of make the, yeah, complicate things. Because it's also like, I, to me, one of the things I really want to, a reader of my book to come away with is like an understanding that the challenge that AI poses in my view to art, one of the challenges besides like say money is the the software is getting good. And what does it mean to our conception of artistic creativity, artistic genius works of art, if it is contributed to offset by contaminated by computer generated stuff. And so I wanted my book to include interesting or even good interventions at time that, that came from a machine, not just bad stuff. Yeah, fair enough. And I, wow, now my mind is blown uh, that you and like, so <laughs> I, th- I thought it was a, I guess a, a, a narrative device and in a sense, it is. Yeah, but it is. it's you using the 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 AI. Yeah, AI. so yeah. truly, truly, all of the anything that's in kind of the nor- not in chat font, but in any of the first person writing that is shaded was genuinely generated by AI hmm. and edited by me. And then also all of Charlotte's poetry, any poetry that appears in the book as invented by Charlotte, was stuff that I worked on with AI. Again, mind blown. That's thank you for that insight. <laughs> I, that's not, I don't think that's indicated any other way. So I appreciate that unless I miss something. I w- there's a, there's a reference in the author's note, but it's a bit confusing to wrap your head around. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I might've been uh, uh, sun soaked as I was on vacation by that <laughs> point. I did read the review as I said, but maybe I missed that. I want to ask you about randomness and language. Um, mm-hmm. Some 20 years ago, uh, uh, Lee Ronaldo, the guitarist and musician, mm-hmm. uh, some some people would know him best from Sonic Youth, but he's done lots of uh, work on his own and continues to. Uh, Lee published a, a poetry book based on spam emails he was receiving, mm-hmm. and I think they were primarily mm-hmm. like pharmacists at the time. It was quite in fashion for you for people <laughs> to receive spam, specifically about pharmaceutical companies and things like that. <laughs> But as he got yeah. them, and he, and, and I think, and I don't want to speak on Lee's behalf here. I talked to him about it at the time. I think this was literally two thousand three, four, five, six, something like that. And um, he said he was just struck by the the language that these spam bots were formulating, mm-hmm. the the sentences, the words, and he would t- break them apart and adapt them and and create ostensibly um, spam poetry. And I, I maybe didn't think it at the time, but I think he was he was grappling with the randomness of the collection mm-hmm. of words and and his in his mind that had a poetic quality to it and i think for the mm-hmm. for some people poetry is uh, on the page can be very random and i think for some mm-hmm. other people uh, in 2023 ai chat gpt they seem random they seem like they're they're mm-hmm. just grabbing things like you said yourself when you've first fooled around with it in, in 2019, it would be banal, it would be nonsensical, or it, I don't know if you said profound, but I, I gather every once in a yeah. while you would 
pick up on something. And that's evident in mm-hmm. this book. Can we talk a little bit about the, from your viewpoint anyway, as a, a literary person, the the seeming randomness of poetry as it, as it uh, relates to what we're all going through right now with these new seemingly, I, I, they've been around a while, but these new things, this new technology, is randomness something that interests you in terms of how people use language, how poetry is formed, how chat GPT and all these things work? Do you know where I'm coming from there? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I mean, this makes me think of two different things. One, one is a technological parameter called temperature. So modern AI, large language model, chat GPT-like things, there's a setting called temperature inside them. And some of these AIs that you play with allow you to modify the temperature to raise it between, to starts at zero and goes up to one. So as high as 1.0. When an AI, so all of these large language models, what they do is they're trying to predict the next word in a string. So if you've written one day, I went to the, and then click generate, it's trying to guess what word should come after the. And things like ChatGPT have their randomness or their temperature, which is sort of like randomness, set very low. And so when you write, uh, one day I went to the, it's going to come up with, I don't know, 10 or 100 or 1,000 possibilities of how to of what the next work can be. And it, the lower the temperature, the more likely it is going to choose the very top result. Hmm. So one day I went to the store, if that's the most likely if the temperature is set to zero or to 0.1, it will definitely write store. One day I went to the store. And if you set temperature up very high, like to 0.9, then it the system is more free to choose a less likely, make a less likely choice. So one day I went to the circus or one day I went to the moon. Um, and so with some of these tools, you literally can play with do I want an unlikely answer or I'd want, do I want a likely answer? And so ChatGPT in particular has its temperature actually turned down very low because they want it to be sort of truthful mm. and predictable mm. and bland. Mm. They don't want when you say, you know, how do you cook a scrambled egg? You don't want them to say like, well, take a hammer, like step one, grab a hammer. They want it to be kind of predictable and, and bland. Huh. When I was working with these tools, one of the challenges was was trying to configure them so that the temperature could be higher because my preference as a writer of fiction of of and I like you know stylized fiction fiction that has a literary style it means you don't always choose the most obvious word you don't always choose the most obvious way that a sentence or a story could go and to me there was something sort of provocative about the idea that AI could like literally is like a knob that basically makes things more interest, more stylistically interesting or less stylistically interesting. So that's one piece. Huh. And I would say that some of the criticisms we see of uh, text generated by AI in most of the free public consumption, easy stuff, people should be careful about saying, oh, the AI is bland or dumb or boring or can't do style. Because the reason it's struggling so much is that its temperature setting is locked in at something very low. And if you were to play with some of this software where you can control the temperature more, you'd see it actually can be quite graceful and agile. Graceful is the wrong word, but more agile in terms of mimicking style. So well, some of the you know, some know, of the yeah. jokes I've seen at the expense of some of the uh, AI generated text is how blunt 
and sort of socially tactless yes. it can be. Yeah. And on, like, like it Nick seems Cave it's more famous. honest in, in a weird way. Oh, that's true as well. <laughs> Someone like Nick Cave, though, has written more than once now about how this is like garbage and it can't yeah. copy his style at all. And I read this and I mean, it. some of his statements are just naive because asking ChatGPT to write a Nick Cave song, it's just not good at that task. But if you take one of these other AIs, configure it correctly and feed in some Nick Cave lyrics, it absolutely can give him this like weird funhouse mirror version of his work that it, that mostly would be probably disgust, abhorrent to him and to me, but at times might also be fascinating. And the other thing I want to say about randomness, though, is there are a couple beats in the book where I meditate on this humans are very good at making meaning from of like interpreting finding meaning in that's why you see an abstract painting and you can make some meaning of it or even you know a, a sketch drawing you can say oh that's somebody's face a caricature is somebody's face even though it looks nothing like a photograph yeah um or you know the sound of a guitar can be that's very angry or that's very peaceful when there's nothing inherent to these sound waves that communicates emotion we're very good at kind of imagining meaning yeah. and feeling into stuff and that's beautiful and it's the foundation of art in my view and maybe even to civilization but at times working with ai made me confront the idea that that's in some ways of this kind of weird liability or weakness if we're really obsessed with like human superiority human exclusive like the the magic ineffable magic power of human imagination over you know some machine made thing so, you know, huh. I, because one of the criticisms of AI is like, it's random. And certainly it's literally statistically, like kind of not semi-random, but probabilistic. If you ask the large language model, I went to the, it's just going to be choosing based on what the most likely responses are. Yeah. But if I, if I were to write in, you know, like um, the moon in the sky looked like an, and then asked it to you know, it might say looked like a, I don't know, a circle looked like a ball of ice looked like a, it might give you sort of predictable, inter, uh, uninteresting answers. And then it might give you wrong kind of answers. The moon looked like cheese, the moon looked like television or something like that. But occasionally those wrong things can be really fascinating but but you and I, so you you know you you talked about how we met at the Dawson City or sorry mm -hmm. I said we we talked about the Dawson City Music Festival and that's uh, I established that that's really where we met uh I think we met in Whitehorse by the way cuz you reached out when we there was a stopover and you were like oh, right. Fish, yeah. I'm friends with Kit and blah 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 <laughs> but we were both there uh among other reasons we were there uh but we were kind of known for covering underground music for lack of a better yeah. term this temperature discussion you're talking about is really fascinating, uh, as, uh, or rather, I wonder, to me, it's fascinating. I wonder if you see a correlation between, I went to the store, uh, being mm -hmm. maybe something you would hear, and I'm being very reductive here. I went to mm -hmm. the store, you would hear maybe in a song on, let's say, mainstream radio. I went to the uh -huh. moon, you might hear on a Nick Cave album. You might hear right, on right. underground radio. Are we programmed? And I can't explain how I'm programmed or why I'm wired to go to the moon lyric before I accept the store lyric as being as good mm -hmm. <laughs> or as interesting. I can't explain it to you. It's a 
There's just something in my fundamental foundation that drew me to being like, no, no, no. The store is boring. The moon is interesting. I want to hear that song. Do you see a correlation yes. between how we've been programmed or are programmed? I'm talking in this case, Sean, you and me. Uh, the, where yeah, where yeah. our predilections and idiosyncrasies seem to be uh, when it ter- when it comes to what we want to consume and what we want to champion versus uh, what other people do. Do you see any connection between how we tend to live and uh, and appreciate art versus what's kind of happening in this book and what's kind of happening in culture with AI and what it all means? Sorry, if it's like too convoluted. <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's 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 weird, isn't it? Because you've got this character uh, Marion too, who's a snob. I mean, she's yeah. she's a snob about poetry. Like she's she's an established mm-hmm. poet, and she doesn't trust this machine to know what it's doing. And uh, I mean, gradually, and also again, no spoilers. Like eventually, I won't explain exactly how she uh, gets to the point where she completes the project. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's not, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, sorry, back to my point. Do you, do you relate to AI? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, the temperature it, thing? <laughs> yeah, I do. Like, that's part of the spookiness is like, you know, there's this moment where, uh, Marion's reflecting on something Charlotte has written and she's like, oh, this is garbage. Yeah. And then she's like, oh, wait, or, or maybe it's just hold on. Maybe it's really good. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. It's garbage. And to me, like, that's funny. But it's also like not unlike what I do when I'm at my desk writing a sentence of a short story is this constant, like the more kind of surprising your choices are, which is the like the heart of, I mean, sorry, good literature isn't just like the most surprising choice of words, but it's this funny kind of tension between surprise and expectation and and this kind of dance but a lot of the time i'm you know writing a sentence and i have no idea whether what i've written is good or terrible and whether the choice to use an unusual word is you know the classic version of this is just like writers when you're learning to write you write dialogue and you say you know so so what do you think vish said well this is what i think sean said yeah and then there's like a certain moment of like the amateur or like the student writer who starts replacing said with like sneered, giggled, shuddered, like this, all these weird synonyms exclaimed. And then you're told, because it seems to make the work loftier and more grown up. And then hopefully a writing teacher says, or you start, or you just notice from reading enough books, like, no, no, we have a convention in English where we don't do that, where we mostly just use said or nothing at all. And so sometimes you're reading something back and you, I'll, I'll spend 10 minutes trying to decide if I really should say shouted or if I should use an exclamation mark and, <laughs> and no, you know, something like that. This is a book about collaboration, though, too. Um, yes. Very, very much, much so. Yeah. So you've got uh, an esteemed uh, figure who knows and, and you know, has every reason to, to believe she knows what she's doing, um, collaborating with not only a, a machine in Charlotte, but also younger mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. aspiring poets. And in Marion's case, like with the example you cited of her, not being sure if um, what Charlotte has generated is good or not, but it's mm-hmm. part of the same project. Like they're working on something together. <laughs> so she's got to mm-hmm. like, I came up with the thing that is launching this thing to do this thing, which is often what mm-hmm. teachers do yeah. when they're working with a student. Have you ever collaborated with someone in such a way, Sean, where you're like trading prose back and forth? I've tried. 
I've done some projects that have been collaborative and I used to do, I sometimes do, I've performed improv, which is like the most collaborative, creative thing I've done, but no, but I know why I haven't like written a book with somebody else. That sounds very challenging, but, but I think you're touching on something that I think is really important. One of the kind of possible answers I started coming to as I thought about this question of, you know, the technology and art is it keeps being formulated in this way of like, will we let the robots replace us? And this kind of zero sum game of replacement strikes me as actually being really not the only way that we could conceive of this. Obviously the economic stuff is sort of separate, but the more I started thinking about the way that art making is this collaboration, a collaboration with the artists that came before us collaboration with the people who built the tools that we use, collaboration with our peers and our inspirations, the less dangerous AI, the less dangerous, less lethal AI felt to me. Um, And then that started to kind of cloud in with some of my other thoughts also about just the way that our obsession about our obsession with a certain kind of artistic genius of like solitary genius, the idea of novel, that novelists like me, you know, you kind of want to hermetically seal yourself away from the world so that you can, so that the divine angel of inspiration can visit you and not let yourself be corrupted by the real world and all this stuff. And it's like, you know, the way we forgive so many famous artists for being awful human beings, because that's what they needed to do for their art. And I kind of mm. call BS on a lot of those claims and, Certainly, I think that a richer, happier life and a more fertile art is made when you are engaging with the world and collaborating, in a sense, with the people in your life, or maybe with other artists and younger artists. Um, And I wanted to kind of make that part of this book, too, where it's the story of a celebrated older poet who has spent her whole life trying to kind of form a little, like, nest a little eerie for herself in some high tower so that she can make her work because she thinks that's the only way it can be done when really it's one of the most em- kind of emaciated ways that one can be an artist is by hiding away in that way. It's fascinating to read uh, Marion encountering some of the scientists uh, as the poem is progressing mm-hmm. and as progress is being made. Marion is sort of Put in a position where she's watching these men, mostly men, mm-hmm. who are scientists, read the works in progress, and they weep. <laughs> they 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 weep because it, that's an interesting thing. Because I think as the reader, you're like, well, they're weeping because they invented a robot, and the <laughs> robot is working. But then the other side of it is they're weeping because the art is moving them, perhaps. Mm-hmm. I will say I'm more on the the former. Like I feel like they're like our yeah. our baby is actually working. Yeah. But then you've got this knot of them being exposed to, for whatever it's worth, poetry is is viewed. I don't know. I feel like there's a commentary here on on how poetry is actually viewed and processed by people, particularly scientists. Yeah. You know, uh, those of us who uh, maybe come from English studies backgrounds are like, yeah, yeah. Poetry is very moving. It's very mm-hmm. integral. And it's just fascinating to me that you chose, po- of all the language forms to center this kind of story around, you chose poetry, which for some people is maybe one of the most inaccessible. I was just talking to a, a Fen Lily. Do you know this artist, Fen Lily, from uh, The Musician? No. 
Oh man, you gotta check out her album Big Picture. It came out uh, on uh, Dead Ocean. She was just on the show. Uh, it came out on Dead Ocean's Shunt, one of my favorite records of the year. Lyrics are wow. fantastic. She's great. Anyway, we were talking about sleeping and, and exercise and stress and, and how she's trying to sleep more. And she said, these days, uh, to get myself to sleep, I'm reading poetry. <laughs> <laughs> and she has this background of just immersing herself in poets, but mm-hmm. she says it really helps her center herself and fall asleep. I think a lot of people find poetry uh, to be uh, dream-inducing or... Uh, boring or mm-hmm. or numbing or something. So I just want to say, uh, and and you know, you, sorry, do you have a background in poetry yourself? I know you no, as a prose no. writer. Okay. Any particular reason you chose poetry? Of all the things you could choose in terms of written expression, think, why poetry? I remember. So my last book, The Wagers, I, is partly a book about making art, art making. And I remember one of the things I liked was I I made the decision. I'm like, oh, I want to write a book about kind of being an artist but of course i'm not i'm not going to i don't want to write a book about like some law the law like write a book about a poet like make it so clearly loftily about art like the loftiest form of art making so instead i made it about a stand-up comic which struck me as like being the most shabby (laughs) disrespect like irrespectful (laughs) unrespectful and unrespectable uh kind of artist you know barely an artist in the view of some people and so i could write a book about being an artist by making it about a stand-up comic, it kind of conceals some of that. And I think there was something sort of perverse in me that after <laughs> I would never want to write a book, book about being an artist, like as a poet yeah. uh, to then be like, okay, now let's grapple with the poet because the poet is, the, is, does have the symbolic place in our culture as both the, like the most eminent example of, of artistic something. Right. While also being kind of, not garnering the respect or, or kind of being seen as non-commercial, non-useful in, in a, in a way that's kind of provocative and interesting. Yeah. And this comes at a time where almost any, um, person who expresses their thoughts is, uh, is viewed with some disdain. Mm-hmm. Uh, any expertise is, is, is sort of mocked. Yeah. And mm-hmm. anyway, it's a very weird uh, time. And, uh, but this book comes to me, uh, comes to us rather at a, yeah, it's just an interesting. Do you feel like we're at a crossroads? Like, are you sorry? I didn't. I meant to ask you this earlier as you were talking <laughs> about your explorations. Like, do you yourself embrace AI? Because as we're again, as we're speaking, Sean, there is a there has been a massive strike um, between the Writers Guild and the Actors mm-hmm. Guild. They've joined forces and um, they are buckled in, buckled down in this strike. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be over by the time people hear this if the year mm-hmm. is 2025. I don't think it's going anywhere. <laughs> no, but one of the no. primary um, points of contention is the use of AI. The studios yeah. uh, want to use it more. Uh, the writers in particular and the actors, actually, yeah, what am I talking about? They're trying to actually replicate people's faces using yeah. this technology so that the acting can go on into infinity even long after these actors are actually uh, gone. Sorry, a lot of context for this question, but given how much you've explored and 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 fiddled with AI, do you embrace it as a writer yourself? Like do you see this as something we should be embracing as opposed to like Nick Cave derisively saying this isn't it, this isn't working? Well, I think that we should be posing questions about this that are more thoughtful and uh, curious than just like, is this going to take money out of my pocket? I, I 
I'm not, I would be surprised if my next book involves AI. Yeah. Like in its making, but I would also be surprised if there was a novelist or there were very many novelists in 25 years who are making books without drawing on some kind of AI tools a little bit. I think, think about the way that, you know, we're all, whenever we take a photograph on our phones and, or our gizmos and use that magic wand tool to like beautify it, people aren't having this like major moment of hesitation being like, should I do this involve an AI? And why shouldn't I use my human creativity to, to modify the color saturation on this? I'm, in a large part, and I think it's just the tools are kind of useful enough that they become integrated into life. And I think that that's going to happen with a lot of AI tools. And I also think that I think two things can be true. One is that studios or publishers or whatever are trying to F creators. Yeah. And also that those creators are kind of misunderstanding some of the challenges. Like I remember, I'm sure you heard like some of the actors rants against AI use of scanning their faces. Like I heard a Mark Maron rant recently. My impression is that it's like, he's very mistaken in that the studios will not have, you know, you have in America, at least, I don't know, actually the Canadian laws as well. You have a, you have control ownership over your likeness. Nobody can take, you know, Mm. they can't, someone can't release a Drake song without Drake's permission because he has this right to to own one's likeness without and so i think some of the worries are a little bit like incorrect well i will um, but i think uh first of all mark maron is often incorrect secondly uh <laughs> i think uh <laughs> i think uh that what we're getting to is it's been a long-standing thing that the copy the emulation of something is actually good enough for the general public mm-hmm. and they won't even notice mm-hmm. the difference how many of us mm-hmm. have been watching uh, television, uh, those of us who, or, or YouTube or whatever, and still encounter a commercial? And the music is so yes. familiar. It's, it's so yes. much, and you know, I hesitate to say his name, but like, I've, I can't uh, go uh, a week without hearing a, a, a television commercial that doesn't sound like a Kanye West production. Mm-hmm. Like almost exactly, yes. except it's just a little different, so they don't have to pay, you know. And how many yeah, how, how many lawsuits have occurred over the years saying you're act this is actually copying me or this is too close to what I did exactly. But yeah. but I also think that artists should not let their whole their curiosity and um, they shouldn't allow this conversation to solely be a conversation of like what will we do about the like crappiest yeah. art that's being made. Sure. And that might take, you know, that might, we might have more of this crappy stuff that is made by machines that like at the, at the lowest mass market end of. But uh, I think the defensive fear is that it will be as good uh, and that it will actually fool enough people. I think that's what's going to happen. I think when you hear Nick Cave or Mark Maron or whomever rant about it, I think it's defensiveness. Uh, And and I'm not saying that's bad. I'm saying like I need to def- I'm saying they're probably like I need to defend what makes me special what makes my brethren special and if they're starting to if they're just experimenting with this and we're all laughing at these uh emulations of a stand-up comedy joke or an emulation of a a Nick Cave song the more that's done I think these these people the creators know that it will get closer and closer and closer until it's the general public, as time passes, 
we might forget someone published I think it, you that, know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. But I think you're, those artists are selling art short. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's a, a classic comedy line about comedy, which is like, if someone else could tell this joke, it's not really yours. You know, right. it's how valuable is a joke if anybody else could tell it. Yeah. And I think there's some of that where, yeah, which is where I land. Um, I think that artists should should appreciate that there's a wellspring of some. I remember hearing with kind of a certain chill the idea that AI had been trained on some Bach, like five-piece choral music. So Johann Sebastian Bach, these choral pieces. And so it was this crazy thing that you could give, you know, uh, if you told, could teach a computer the four parts of the the first four voices in a choir and then ask it to generate the fifth voice. And it was actually a really easy thing to to train a computer to do because you ha- could have the actual fifth voice. You know, you could take yeah. a five-voice Bach thing and you could be like, guess what the first note of the fifth voice is? And if it was the one that Bach chose, correct. If the one it, it not the one he chose, wrong. Yeah. So you can train these machines on this. And so suddenly you had this AI that could like simulate Bach Oh my God. But of course, the only reason it could simulate that is that you had had all this Bach, that Bach invented this form of beautiful music that you could feed it on. And so similarly, like if an AI can generate some garbagey, like version of Kanye West's original early stuff, then I think it's only going to make more precious and valuable and obviously precious and valuable the inventive work that an AI could never do. I mean, guitars were invented how whenever they were invented, and somehow people use them and they have the exact same keys. Uh, mm-hmm. Sorry, that's the wrong term to use. That's no, too no. confusing. Yeah. Everyone has the same access point to the chords, the basic chords, and then they go wherever they go. And every once in a while, you will hear someone say, ah, 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 you took my progression from 50 years ago and <laughs> made it into your own thing, and I don't like that, and I want to compensated for that at the very least or credited but it is kind of remarkable you know that the the drum kits are lots of things are kind of they get invented we figure them out humans do and then people make their own things with them like it's the exact same yeah, if thing pick, if someone picks up a saxophone if a, yeah. you know a saxophonist picks up their saxophone and they hear wait someone else was playing the saxophone <laughs> were they using any other thing no just the saxophone like a great saxophonist isn't going to be like oh no i'm ruined yes that's true say well get get a load of this yes, you know yes there's still room to innovate within all of this stuff and and find a voice yeah. i guess i think maybe you're well you swayed me i wasn't sure where i was leading landing on this argument but I think uh, it's maybe still early days. Uh, but yeah, I think. But I think if your form of art, if you're an artist and your main form of art is writing like really garbagey coloring books that are sold at the dollar store, like look out. Yes, ex- <laughs> like, yes. That, you know. But if the temperature is adjusted, you might get a really beautiful <laughs> coloring book at the end of it. Anyway, it's just I'm I'm fascinated by all of this, uh, Sean. I hope we didn't do a disservice uh, to the book. Do you think we talked? Me too. I I, I, <laughs> I, <laughs> I I just wanted to give people. I I I'm sorry. I'm mindful of spoiling novels on my show, and I don't want to t- t- say too much about it, other than to uh, be exuberant about it. It's I I really love it. It's really another wonderful book, and it's another example of you taking, uh, I guess, factual. Uh, figures and and mm-hmm. uh adapting them into fantastical ways that i find really um compelling so 
Is there anything more you want to say about the book that we didn't get to? Um, I hate to put the, the it's my interview. I hate to put the uh, burden <laughs> on you, but is there anything you uh, want to say before we uh, wrap up here? Well, I would say, you know, it's out on September 5th and I'm going to be traveling around a bit. I'll be in Vancouver and San Francisco and Montreal and Toronto and Halifax and Austin, Texas. And I would love if anyone listens to this show and is in those places and comes on out, I'd love to talk to them, talk to you, anyone more <laughs> about any of these things. I have a large, yeah. uh, larger American audience uh, than I do a Canadian one. So I hope uh, people in those uh uh, cities uh, hear what you have to say if people want to learn more about you and this book uh, Sean where would you like to direct them on the uh, AI based internet can... <laughs> yeah just go into chat GPT <laughs> no don't, don't. Uh, my website is byshawnmichaels.com or you can find me on twitter at swanmichaels swan like the bird okay and, and by the way uh, we, we've sort of touched on music uh, uh, a little bit here and there is any said the gramophone things? Are you still working on sort of music writing and, and, and whatnot? I do bits and pieces of things here and there, but not, I've been, yeah, I've really been busy with this. So Okay. Okay. So, yeah. all right. So let's check out your website. You also, sorry, you alluded to what your next book may or may not be. Are you already working on something? Uh, <laughs> what did we say about secrets? Of well, you can. This chat? <laughs> yeah. I don't expect details. I just, I just, I'm just doing a wellness check. Are you able to? <laughs> yeah, no. I, yeah, well, I mean, I think that's correct. I'd be very grumpy if I didn't have something to work on. So, okay. yeah, I do have a bit of something to work on. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. Well, I, I, as you know, I'm a big fan of you. I love you, Sean. Thank you for making I time for me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, everyone check out, uh, do you remember being born? Uh, it's really a wonderful novel and, uh, yeah, Sean, thanks again for your support of me and my show and my work and, and for being back with me and, uh, uh, we'll talk soon and best of luck in the future. My pleasure. Uh, have a great day. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sean Michaels there about his new book, Do You Remember Being Born? And I hope you'll pick it up for yourself. Order a copy, buy a copy at your local bookstore, ask your library to stock it, whatever you got to do. It's a wonderful book. And again, Sean, thanks for being on this, the 798th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available just about wherever you get your podcasts. If you're having trouble locating an episode that you've heard about or uh, you want to learn more about me and sign up for my monthly newsletter, please visit vishkana.com. You can like Creative Control on Facebook or follow me and the show on social media. 
We are still on Twitter at Vish Creative, or you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Vish Khanna, and you can also find me on some of the other things like Blue Sky and Mastodon and whatever. I don't know. I'm on the things. You just have to find me, and hopefully you find the right me. Also, please visit patreon.com slash Control to make a flexible monthly donation to sustain this podcast. A reminder that $6 American or more a month grants you access to some exclusive content. And if you're interested in receiving a Creative Control t-shirt, just message me on Patreon and I'll get you one while supplies last. I just received such a message last night. It's coming to my memory right now. So I have to dig into that and find out what this uh, kind person wants and I will send them a shirt. Anyway, you can learn more about uh, how to do uh, all of those things and, and get a shirt at patreon.com slash creative control. Thank you in advance for uh, considering that. Uh, speaking of thank yous, I want to thank Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario for their long time and in-kind support for this show. I also want to thank my dear friend Jim Guthrie for letting me use some music of his on this show each week. You can learn more about Jim at jimguthrie.org. And finally, thank you so much for listening to this episode with Sean Michaels. Again, I hope you will keep tabs on Sean's work. Uh, go to his website. I've linked to a bunch of stuff in the show notes here, but this book is wonderful. Do you remember being born? So I hope you'll check that out. I hope you will subscribe to this podcast or tell your friends all about it and spread the word about creative control. And otherwise, I just hope you're well and that we talk soon. All right. Be well. Take care. Bye for now. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.